Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Kamal Ahmed. Ytree was founded in 2017 to give its clients transparency, efficiency, and meaning so they can understand their financial lives as they are and as they could be. Today, we're introducing a new theme in the Futureverse, life transitions. Childhood, adolescence, marriage, divorce, becoming a parent, losing a parent, career changes, retirement. Life is, of course, made up of transitions, some big, some small. We'll be digging into many of these over the coming weeks. But we're going to start with hobbies. Now, it's a word that can sometimes feel a little bit silly, one we often dismiss, demoting them to the status of a frivolity or a time filler. But our hobbies are often our passions, our interests. And without these, where would we be? How would we weather the difficult times or take advantage of our talents, perhaps even create the change in our lives we have been looking for? I'm joined today by four amazing guests to discuss how their passions and interests led them down more fulfilling or exciting, or dare I say it, just fun paths. So welcome to Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect Magazine and former editor of The Guardian. He rediscovered a love for the piano aged 40. And this hobby is at the heart of his memoir, Play It Again. Steve Cook is senior partner at Slaughter and May, a firm which counts a third of the members of the FTSE 100 as clients. Given that, somehow he also finds time for music, spending his Sundays composing scores for films and documentaries, one of which won him a BAFTA. And I feel we should have a drum roll here, or probably something more musically clever. Our new Futureverse music is a Steve Cook composition. Emma Kennedy is a best-selling author, screenwriter, actress and presenter. She won Celebrity MasterChef in 2012, is a Guinness World Record holder for organising the world's largest kazoo orchestra at the Royal Albert Hall for Comic Relief, and that's just part of her day job. Emma is also a Lego fanatic, which she shares with her legions of fans, fellow adult fans of Lego via Twitter and YouTube. And Mark Gershison, who is founding investor in Ytree. Having retired from a successful career in property investment, he has now fully embraced his passion for golf and hopes to be on the amateur England team this year. Alan, Steve, Emma and Mark, welcome to the podcast. Now, Alan, let, let's start with you. In your book, Play It Again, you describe yourself as the archetypal amateur who, having given up the piano at 16, returned to it in middle age. Give us a little story into why you started again your musical career and why the piano became such an important part of that. Well, I, I think lots of us, when we're uh, young, do artistic things. We, we act, we dance, we paint, we we perform and then we grow up 
and when when we uh, we get proper jobs and and all that falls away. But I I, I have a theory that it, it it never really goes away. And certainly when I was in my late thirties, early forties, it it burst back through and demanded to be heard. And I, and I bitterly regretted having given up the piano, which was, I think is a very common thing. And I, I started taking it rather seriously and taking piano lessons. And I went on a piano camp in France, which was where this book began because there were. Eight, eight, eight or ten other people like me, um, equally uh, hopeless, stroke rusty. I discovered that the, these hopeless players could play really stunning pieces of music, and that was the origin of my journey. Alan, you talk about, and I think this is probably true for so many people listening to this podcast who have been through that journey, as you say, of kind of giving up music or some kind of creative activity you did outside what might be described as your schoolwork but then taking it up often around that 40-year-old mark. What, what was it, Alan, that was going on in your life then that suddenly, because it's often a time, and I think it was true for you particularly, when you are super, super busy and you think, I know, what would really help me here is to take on a really difficult task. Well, I think it's partly, I think this is true of, of some people. You, if you have kids, um, your kids get to an age round about teenagers when I'm not going to say they're they're, <laughs> they're easy but but they're but they're perhaps less demanding on a sort of hour by hour basis so you you perhaps have a bit of time in the evening or at weekends but I I certainly found this that, that doing a job as demanding as editing a national newspaper which by then was being published every day of the year round the clock so that you were never off just finding 20 minutes a day where you switched off everything and did something completely different so it didn't use any of the skills that I used in, in editing. It was a very manual thing. It used different bits of the brain. And I've, I found it a kind of um, essential refuge. I found if I had done my 20 minutes in the morning of, of playing the piano, I was kind of ready for the day. And days when I neglected it, I felt somehow less prepared. So I, it was a kind of sort of nourishment as well as a hobby. And Alan, I just want to actually read just a small extract of the book and then ask a question after it. So this is a small part of uh, Play It Again. Call it an escape, call it a compulsion, but it felt like a physical need. If I could spend 20 minutes at the piano before going to work, I had a powerful sense that the chemistry of my brain had been altered. On the days I played, my brain felt settled and ready for whatever the next 12 hours would bring. So as you say, Alan, from that extract, it sounds like playing the piano made you a better editor. I think so. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not a scientist, and that, that phrase I used about the chemistry of the brain, I actually, in writing the book, I went to see a, a, a proper neuroscientist, and um, he said, no, it's got nothing to do with the chemistry. And I was I was interested, actually, in the plasticity of the brain, because that's, that's the other thing. I think people leave these things quite late, and then they think, am I ever going to be able to go back and relearn the piano? And the encouraging news is it, it's never too late to, to go back and do something that you can do. So I decided to play Chopin's first ballad in G minor, which is a piece that terrifies many professional musicians. Vladimir Horowitz played it hundreds of times and one of the pianists told me he never managed to play it right. And the reason I played it was I was on, the, on this piano camp with a guy who I knew was no better than me uh, and he played it one evening and I just thought, well, if he can play it, that must mean that I can play it. And it took me 18 months to 
kind of wouldn't say master it. Um, the, the, the reason I love the word amateur is that it simply means for the love of. It's become a, a, a sort of pejorative term. Or you, you, you're a rank amateur, but actually amateur musicians were up there with professional musicians in, in just doing things because of the love of it, not because you wanted to get paid lots of money or win lots of competitions. The subtitle to your book is actually an amateur against the impossible, which I think is a lovely phrase. Um, Steve, could I come to you next? Also, interestingly, music for you was a vitally important and almost your career in the early days. Those of you uh, aficionados uh, of your music history may have heard of the stereotypes, I think uh, appeared on Radio 1 at least once, if not more often. Could almost have been your career, Steve. I just wondered, music's always been part of your life. Uh, and How has it sort of helped you in your career as frankly, an astonishingly successful corporate lawyer. Well, like Alan, I, I took up the piano at an early age and gave it up at an early age. At the age of eight, started it. age of eight, also finished it, but then tried to be a rock star. Got played on daytime Radio 1 and thought, what could go wrong? Um, well, it wasn't a hit and the band broke up. So I just sort of carried on with this hobby, which sort of gradually became a bit out of control as we, as we actually started doing film and television music. And, uh, and that just carried on ballooning into a, into a proper business. But to your question, how did it help me on? Well, it's very much like Alan. It's, it was saying, it's a different part of your brain. It's, you're doing something different. It's a sort of diversity of activity, which I think helps you deal with what is undeniably, in my case, a very, you know, pretty stressful job working all hours of the day. But it's a different, you know, it's just something different. Admittedly, it does sometimes become quite similar when you have clients who are quite demanding and you're not just doing it for yourself. We uh, once did a pot noodle advert and it's the first and last time we'll ever do an advert because the people are just too annoying. And actually the sort of music you end up producing, particularly for this pot noodle advert, is not actually the sort of music you probably want to be doing in the first place. How do you balance, Steve, the busyness of, as you say, your career with being able to continue. I think it's this idea of, as Alan says, amateur being sort of a downgraded word when it shouldn't be, hobby similarly, but certainly not uh, uh, something that was your mainstay income. Although, of course, it is a very important part of your profession uh, and your professional uh, skills. How do you make sure you fit it in? Is there a time, like Alan said, where he did 20 minutes a day? How did it work for you? Yeah, I, I person off to some degree routine. So I would make sure that Sunday evening was the, was the evening for doing creating music. And, and sometimes that's not a particularly good way of doing it because you can sit down at the keyboard or the guitar or whatever and nothing pulls out of you. But actually quite often you're having to write to a, to a deadline, produce to a deadline, which can be a bit stressful. But actually, on the other hand, it's, you know, it's a bit, a bit like my day job. You, you just somehow seem to fit it in. And actually, you know, finding time to do it, again, relieves the, relieves the stresses of, of the day job. Routine, I'm hearing from both Alan and you, was an important uh, part of it. Alan, could I come back to you? When you were having this period of, of, of practicing and relearning the piano, but practicing this very, very tough, deliberately tough piece of work by uh, Chopin, it was a time when The Guardian itself was in the headlines for the amazing journalism you were doing, WikiLeaks, for example, the phone hacking scandal. I must admit, as someone 
who has been in journalism my whole career, the notion of then doing 20 minutes a day, I mean, how did you maintain that commitment? Well, I think editing is a is a job that can send you mad. Um, and and um, maybe we can think of examples of <laughs> editors who have been so mad by the, by the job uh, because it's so intense and because it, it is never off and because it's so unpredictable and there's, there's always some calamity happening, um, you know, either in the outside world or internally within the organisation. So that if, if you let it overwhelm you, uh, it easily would. And I think another thing that develops with, with some editors is that they have no outside frame of reference at all. The, the, the job becomes the whole thing. Uh, and I'm not sure they're necessarily better editors for that. So uh, in a in a way, have, having this retreat, my former colleagues may disagree with this, but um, I, but I think it stopped me going mad uh, and and it enabled me to have some degree of detachment and, and perspective. Now share with us, you did actually play the piece at the end of this period of intense practice and learning. How did it go? Well, I, I began it and I ended it and there was a middle. <laughs> Many of the notes are in the right place. Um, it, uh, it's not, it's not you, would, you would not confuse me with Vladimir Horowitz. Um, but in, in a sense, that wasn't the point. I mean, I, w- I went to interview Murray Pariah, the you know, great, great, great pianist um, during the course of it. Um, and he said until the 1920s, professionally, there was no recorded music and that the gap between the professional and the amateur was relatively narrow. And then people got to listen to their own recordings and perfection became the the goal of professional music. And now, unless you can play pieces perfectly, you, you don't get a recording contract and you don't get... But I think Murray thought that something had been lost in that. Uh, and so I didn't play it perfectly, but I, but, you know, I, it, I played it in the way that it, it, it spoke to me. And I think... Uh, although I wouldn't have wanted Murray Pariah in the audience, I think he would have he would have seen the value in this in this performance. Uh, certainly, certainly not note perfect, but but I I think I played it with uh, you know meaning and emotion. So Emma, there we've heard from two pretty accomplished musicians. You found a love in a very different type of direction. I think you were introduced to Lego by your uh, nephew. Tell us about the Lego journey for someone, Emma, who is so creative and so much in that world that Lego seems quite a change from the usual things that keep you busy in your so-called day job. Yeah, so I had never played with Lego as a child and Nobody is more surprised than me. But but what happened was there was a Christmas uh, about four years ago and um, my my wife's nephew came up to me and he'd been given a a small Lego set, uh, but nobody would help him build it. And he said to me, will you help me build it, please? So I said, yes, of course I will. And I I sat down and my brain goes at 100 miles an hour all the time. I think this is quite common with creative people. And something happened to me when I was building that Lego set, that I sort of just had this incredible state of zen and my mind just quietened right down. And afterwards, it it was so intense and so incredible that I couldn't stop thinking about how building the Lego set had made me feel. And then I thought to myself, well, I I can't do Lego, something that adults don't do. I'll just have to wait till next Christmas and hope he gets a Lego set. And um, 
And I was looking at Twitter and another author just happened to post a picture of a, a Lego camper van that she had just finished building. And I thought, oh, OK, adults are allowed to, to build Lego. And um, I bought the camper van set and it was sort of like uh, it was sort of like a gateway drug. Uh, to what was then going to unfold. And I loved building that. And then I got a this incredible set that's called the Ghostbuster Firehouse, which you can't get anymore. It's like an incredible vintage Lego set. And I started just filming myself, uh, the progress that I had made with it each day and, and posting it to Twitter. And then the pandemic happened and I just committed to putting up an hour of me building Lego every single day. And then that was... That was the start of it. And you call, Emma, I think it's called Relax With Bricks. I, I can remember having exactly those conversations with my son and my daughter about Lego sets when they were building Lego sets some years ago, but never actually connecting that with the relaxation of doing it like as part of my kind of life more generally than simply at birthdays and Christmas. But for those of us who are rather less au fait with the wonders of Lego, just talk us through maybe where it puts your headspace when you're working on Lego that is maybe different from how you work during the day. So, you know that sense of, of quiet that comes when you're doing a jigsaw? So Lego uh, is like that, but it's like a 3D jigsaw. And uh, so you can either get uh, sets, of which there are hundreds, if not thousands, um, and you'll receive it and it comes with a booklet which uh, which, which is of the instructions and that tells you step by step how to build something. Or uh, you can do another thing that I do, which is uh, I like to take an existing set so that there is an iconic Star Wars Lego set of, of the Death Star. And then I like to pimp it up. So... My version of the Death Star is the Death Spa, and I think you can you can you can just see it over my shoulder over there. Um, so it's got uh, there's a restaurant on the uh, on the lower level on 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 the first floor. There's a C3PO who is administering Botox to a stormtrooper. There's another stormtrooper who's in a hot tub. Um, there, there's a, a stag do that's going on in a bar and then the upper area is the HR department and, and because I, I built that during the pandemic on every single floor there are miniature hand sanitizers to keep everybody safe from COVID. Does it make, does that put in your sort of brain or your headspace or whatever it might be, Alan, you spoke about chemistry but as you say we're maybe not sure to, maybe not right to talk about that but did, does that help your day job, Emma, or all these things melded together as one? Because presumably Relax With Bricks is probably pretty funny watching it with you. I think what it, what it provides for me that nothing else in my life does is it allows me to play. And I think this is something that a lot of adults have forgotten how to do. And, I, and I'm not talking about like sport uh, or, or board games. I'm talking about pure playing and I, I remember once I was sent by The Guardian to a disused shopping mall in Reading and I spent three and a half hours running round it being chased by um, other adults who were pretending to be zombies and it was probably the single greatest afternoon I've ever had in my life. And what I realised when I was halfway through that experience 
was that, and I was looking around at all the other adults who were also doing it, and they were like really, really into it. And I realised what was happening was that adults were playing in the way that children play and using their imagination and just letting themselves go. And that is what uh, Lego uh, does for me. So, you know, with Relax with Bricks, this is what we do now on on a daily basis. We're, we're essentially, we are playing. I'm interacting with all the adults who are watching it. We come up with all sorts of ridiculous and fantastic stories. We're playing. Steve, was it important to you? You said you had this period in Sunday where you write and you'd have obviously clients who wanted music at certain times maybe not pot noodle every time but others hopefully slightly more or slightly more enjoyably from your side of the fence at least um was it important steve that you had that notion of the target or the commitment that kept you sort of honest in your hobby so to speak out of control hobby i call it yeah it it was it was sometimes important to getting me to sit down at the at the keyboard and and compose something because i knew i had to do something and and so that was that was good. And actually, very often it doesn't, you know. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it does work. And but very often the spur of having to to write something means you end up doing something. Particularly when it when it's not something you'd write in the normal course. You think this has got to be in this sort of genre or whatever. And you and you listen to you know other pieces. You wouldn't be copying them, but you'd get inspiration. And those would and it so it sends you down avenues you wouldn't necessarily go down. On the other hand, very often it's just, I just want to sit down at the piano and write something like that. So it's different inspiration. Sometimes you feel the muse in you and you go and do it. But, but having the spur of having to do something, particularly where someone said, actually, we want it to be sort of alternative jazz with a bit of new metal thrown in or something bizarre like that. It's a different inspiration. And Emma, back to you. You've, you've talked about the Death Spa, which obviously I love. I believe there was also the Liza Millennium Falcon. See what you did there. Tell us a bit about the other the other builds you had. <laughs> yeah, that, the, the Liza Millennium Falcon is very much ongoing. Uh, I, I have a hatred of, of large grey builds, which unfortunately a lot of the Star Wars uh, sets are. And I, I'm mad for Star Wars. I'm absolutely crazy for it. That, that's my other great passion after Lego. And so uh, I am in the process of building the Liza Manellium Falcon, which is a vision in red and white and gold. And it has got a room inside for all of her outfits. You've talked about your following, Emma, the, the sort of mental welfare aspect of having something that puts your mind in a different state. Emma seems to be very important, obviously, to you. I know you've you've got a um, a loyalty to your followers and the people that you connect with every day, but also what about yourself and your own ability to maintain your own mental well-being? Absolutely. Uh, this all started because I discovered that it just took me to a place of complete peace. And uh, so every morning before I have breakfast, I come out Monday to Friday. I don't do it on Saturdays and Sundays. I come out and I will do an hour of Lego before I have breakfast. And Number one, it makes me laugh because there's always funny things that come through from the people who are involved in it. But it just is a lovely thing to do for me to just quieten my mind and get ready for the day. Very much in the same way that Alan was talking about his piano makes him ready for the day. That's exactly what Lego does for me. Fantastic, Emma. Mark, we've had music. We've had Lego. We're going to come to sport now and golf, your passion beyond your fantastically successful career in property investment. Talk, talk us through golf and 
how it played a part in your sort of life and, and how it became such an important part of your life? Uh, golf's quite an obsessive game. I come across so many people starting now at our age that even wives of husbands that resisted it for so many years and they hit a few balls and suddenly they're hooked. I was a mad sportsman as a youngster and I found golf at 12 in an unusual way actually. I used to have very terrible asthma as a kid and I was taken to the mountains for a treatment and there was a golf range there and I'd been playing tennis up till that point and the minute I started hitting the ball at 12 I was hooked and I spent my youth, I suppose my teenage years, literally dawn till dusk every summer holiday and Easter quite often traveling up to the golf club and just wanting to improve and pottering around the practice area and the second nine and, and just playing all the time to try and get better and uh, it's there's so many aspects to golf it's not just hitting a ball it's just every part of the game uh, challenges you, um, both external and internal. It's a life's journey, golf, and every sport you want to try and get good at, but golf really is a life's journey, especially from the mental side. And did you find, Mark, similar to Alan, that you do something when you're young, did you then give up and rediscover, or has it been something of a passion throughout your life? Been throughout, uh, but I gave the game up twice, once when I lost all my money in the crash uh, in 89 and once because I was suffering with nerves in tournaments and stuff and I just wasn't enjoying it and I wanted just to do something that was more enjoyable both times for three years but when I finally came back to it over the years it's something that I've just every weekend of my life I've always wanted to do why it's changed in the last few years I've just hit my 60th birthday but I wasn't willing to sacrifice my business and work to play all the time and the guys that were really good uh, I think did that um, and, and I didn't live on a golf course um, so I you know I, I didn't get as much chance to practice and I wasn't quite good enough when I was in my youth to compete on the in the major circuits if you like as an amateur so it's only when I was able to give myself more time in the recent past. So Mark yours was very much a hobby that's more than a hobby really that really was a transition into that sort of what's described as the retirement phase of your life where you wanted to commit your days to it in a way that for Steve and Alan and Emma it, it's a slightly different part of your life it became what you did yeah I mean I've spent two years now three years uh, it was slightly um, ceased for a year during Covid but I've had three years like traveling the country playing tournaments which I've never done in my life before and although I, I get what Emma says about the Lego. Um, when I'm practicing and I'm in a hot place or on holiday and I'm just on my own, it's the same thing. It's, just a, it's you get into a meditative state. Um, it's just you switch your phone off. You don't even care what's going on in the rest of the world. When you're playing tournaments, it's a different story. And actually, the goal is to get into a meditative state because the more you think, actually, the more it hampers you. So from my perspective, I spent a lifetime trying to curb being a very fast thinker and thinking of a million different things at once and trying to not have all of this huge amount of information that's available to you on the golf swing and the technical aspects of the game, entering it at the point where you actually just want to perform. And I've, I've all my life, I've, uh, from wanting to be a pro at age 15 and not being good enough and being persuaded to go down a more educational and professional route, um, now is the time where I want to see how good I can get. 
it's just about fulfilling my potential when uh, when I can crack it and um, it's just something that drives me and I and I and actually to, to a point where I actually love competing now more than I do just playing friendly games you spoke Mark about nervousness coming into your game and and meaning that you abandoned the game for a period of time I think what's called the yips in, in golf, um, that, that sort of nervousness that affects your, your, your putting stroke in particular. But Mark, talk, talk us through that because we've touched a few times on mental welfare and actually the notion of a hobby or for you a, 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 a something you wanted to concentrate on once your main career had ended. How did you tackle that? How did golf help you tackle the very problem that stopped you playing golf? It was a combination when I wasn't playing and I'd stop because I couldn't make a putt from three foot, two foot sometimes. It sounds absolutely extraordinary, but literally had a twitch in my hands that is a habitual pattern that came in, it's called the yips. It's known in golf. I don't even want to discuss it. It's like having what they call the shanks when you can't hit a ball off the face of a club. But um, I had it when I was young, started when I was about 19, 18, 19. I had it about four or five times actually over the years. But funny enough, I did a lot of personal development work out for business, actually, um, uh, during those times when I, uh, from Anthony Robbins, I listened to loads of books from famous people. And I just spent quite a bit of time trying to quieten the mind and, um, and using, it's not just about quietening the mind, it's, it's transposing something instead of it. So it started when the long putter came out and it was just something so different from normal putting. You could hold a putter up here and, and you, wouldn't, you might feel it, but the putter head couldn't twitch. And that gradually gave you confidence. That's why you see loads of pros on tour using a claw grip, like a, 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 uh, that sort of grip instead of holding a club normally. It stops their hand turning over because the, the motor fine twitch muscles every time there's any form of nerves can be affected the most. And it's on the putting and chipping, the short game where you need touch and you don't just smash the ball, that you, you have to be as relaxed as possible to be at your best. And I'm finding as I'm just getting older, I'm just thinking better and I've managed to overcome it a few times and I'm back to a normal grip and I still feel it quite a bit at times. And you feel that just even that very slight uh, feeling of it can sometimes impede you by holding your hands off and not allowing them to flow. But the more you put meaning on things, Kamal, the more you, you, uh, you, it can happen. And the key to it is, you know, golf is a situation where your peer group's always asking you how you're doing. Everyone wants to know. There's people there watching. You just get, you know, it's a human being feeling like he's, you know, all, all of the things that sportsmen go through. That's why they say that some of the great players in finals have choked. It's not, a, it's not a golf thing, actually. It's a mental thing. And it's something that people say when you get the yips, you have it all your life and it comes back every so often. And they're right. And Mark, just to Alan's point, when he said amateur is seen as is not given the correct definition uh, and it should be much more loved as a word. It's come to mean something that's not as good as being perfect. We should reinvent what we mean by amateur and by hobby, shouldn't we? Yeah, maybe the words should be different, um, more sensory specific, but professional is purely means these days paid, uh, full-time paid generally, and amateur is not. So there's all these great golfers in England and the world 
Um, and the senior uh, over 55 has grown a huge amount actually in the last, uh, certainly in golf in the last few years, that there's so many tournaments you can play in now, whereas years ago there were hardly any. And the senior circuit, uh, I mean, I think a lot of the amateurs would, would, they're not doing it for money, you see, because a lot of them, a lot of them are retired and have made their money. So that, I'm sure if they were really good enough, if they were, the, I, I suspect the top, in the top two only in the whole country, that's the difference between pro and amateur. The senior pros were pros when they were young and they're that much better. And the, the best, best amateurs, I'm sure, have tried to go into the major pro events and they just wouldn't be good enough. Um, yeah, the pro circuit is, is the very, very best. So that's why they do it for the money. Thanks so much, Mark. Alan, in your book, you include a quote from Carl Jung, which concludes, could by any chance culture be the meaning and purpose of the second half of life? Now, thinking about what Mark has said about retirement being an opportunity to really focus on getting to where he's always wanted to get to with golf. Do you imagine, Alan, piano becoming a much bigger part of your life as maybe some other areas of your main profession uh, taper away? I, I can imagine it being bigger, but I would never want it to be my life. Um, I think I think actually amateurs, good amateurs, have the the best of both worlds. Um, think you think about Mark, what, what what Mark was saying about professional golfers. Actually, good amateurs. I, I, I spoke to a, a man called Klaus Moser who had left Germany before the war, and he said that the tradition there of professionals and, and amateurs playing together in house music was a great thing about Berlin in the 1930s. And I, I get great pleasure playing chamber music quite often with professionals because they, a lot of professional musicians don't enjoy their job. Oh, God, I've got to play another Mahler 5 in, in the Royal Festival Hall tonight. It's the 27th time I've played Mahler 5. But you come along and open a bottle of wine and nobody's going to mark your playing, but you do it for the companionship and the love of playing. Uh, and you have a a, a, a drink and a, and a conversation at the end of the. So I I would never I, I think I would you know when I retire fully I would like to play more music, but I but I would never want it to be the main thing in my life. What a great advert for a hobby, Steve. You're stepping down as the senior partner at Slaughter and Main 2024 next year. Do you think that music could take a a bigger role, the role in your life after that? I'm totally with Alan, to be honest. I don't think I'd ever want it to be the only thing in my life. It's nice as, as, as a part of it. Um, and, I'm, and people often say, well, you'll be able to spend more time on your music. And actually, maybe a bit more, but I, but I, I want to do other things as well. And that, that, and that, is, that is the joy of it. Uh, it would be nice to be able to spend a bit more time, but not all of the time. And Emma, could I come to you? What, what advice for those of us, and I must admit this appallingly at the end of this fantastic conversation, who don't really have a hobby? What, 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 what are you going to tell me, Emma, that's going to get me going on that thing? I Playing the recorder that I dropped at the age of 12, I'm really going to become brilliant at that in the uh, second half of my life. Well, I, I would f first start by saying it's never too late to start on anything. And everybody... Everybody without exception will find something that they really like doing and there will always be some sort of hobby that's attached to that. But I would say try things, turn off your phone, stop watching the television and find something that engages your mind in a different way. 
Fantastic. Alan, Emma, Mark and Steve, what an inspiring conversation. I'm now going to go away and immediately start practising my Lego whilst playing the piano with some golf on the side and a bit of light music uh, composition. Uh, one hobby, as a final question for each of you, one sentence, please. The hobby you wished you had done, but you haven't actually done yet. Mark, what are you going to do as your hobby alongside your golf, which you haven't done yet? That's easy, actually. I bought the most amazing electronic Roland piano uh, about 13 years ago. Uh, 13 years ago and, st and promised, because I'm so mad about music, especially jazz, that I've always wanted it. And I've never played or read music at all. But it's sitting, I bought a course recently online and I wanted to start playing piano. So, um, yeah, that's definitely on the agenda, especially for the winter. You can link up with Alan. OK, now, Mark, you said it publicly, so you must now commit to doing that. Uh, Alan, the one hobby you haven't done, it's time for your public confession. And we will return to this to make sure you do it in the future. Um, I want to make pots. My and my, my children, I think, trying to get me to... Uh, take things easier. I actually bought me a potting wheel about two years ago, and um, it's sitting there, like Mark's keyboard, unused. But I, I think the, the satisfaction of using my hands on pots would be wonderful. Okay, Alan, that is now in the public domain, so you will be held to account. Uh, Steve, be a footballer, but that's that is such a fantasy, such a fantasy. Although Spurs' performance at the moment, it, maybe it's not such a fantasy. I might get into the team. Never too late. Fantastic, Steve. All power to you. And Emma, for the final word, the hobby you've never actually successfully done yet. Uh, I would like to uh, have a go at fe animation involving felting. That's what I'd like to do. Fantastic. Well, there four such talented people. Thank you so much for coming on the Futureverse podcast. <laughs>